That seemed like an unfair start to being a musician. Um, there was an abundance of musical instruments laying around my house growing up. I remember getting in, um, into the basement and finding a guitar and a violin and a drum and just stuff everywhere. And I was born with these long, skinny fingers, and I claim no credit for that. If you thought that I would simply be a good musician because of the advantages, you'd be wrong. Every excellent musician would tell you there are three ingredients to becoming a good musician. The first one is practice. The second one is practice. And the third one is practice. If you fail to practice, you're advantaged as you know good. And that's usually how the first music lesson goes. It's of no benefit to you if you disregard your advantage and don't practice. Quite simply, the argument is this. If you disregard your advantage by not practicing, you lose all benefit of having the advantage in the first place. And I think this morning in Romans 3, Paul is teaching us the first music lesson. If you disregard your advantage, you forfeit your benefit. It's as if you had no advantage at all. While you open to Romans chapter 3, I want to catch you up on what we've seen in the first two chapters already. Romans chapter 1 contains the preliminary statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Then Paul ventures to illustrate that the Jew first and also the Greek have seen the manifestation of God's glory in creation yet persist in exchanging his glory with idols. And therefore, when we looked at Romans chapter 2, all were prohibited from judging others because it's God's place to judge as he's the one that uniquely observes that both the Jew and the Greek alike are held to the same standard of perfection for all people that the Jew and the Greek alike fall short of. And in Romans 3, it becomes apparent that the genetically advantaged Jew, in fact, has no advantage over the others unless he uses his advantage. Look with me now at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Let's pray together.
Father, as we open your word, we are confronted with our advantage that we have heard you speak to us. That we hold in our hands a book that contains all the oracles of God. Father, would you speak to us now through your word? Spirit, would you convict and compel us to action? Fix our eyes on Jesus, our hope, and let us live in him. We ask that your word would have its way with us now in your name. Amen. So the big idea in Romans 3 is if you disregard your advantage, you forfeit your benefit. It's, it's very difficult to read your Bible and to understand it without examining context surrounding each particular passage. And the key indicator that Romans 3 fits in the context, in the flow of the argument, is the conjunction it begins with, then. This is now a conclusion or a, a, an application or yet another implication of the arguments Paul's already been making. And he had concluded... Uh, Romans chapter 2 with a strong case for the parody of the Jew and the Greek, that they are equal. The, the Jew who thinks all the right things but is unrighteous is as good as the Gentile who does righteousness but thinks the wrong things. They're the same. Intellect and outward identification are meaningless unless you follow God. So now listen to his overarching question there in verse 1. And I think that this question is the main question. All the other questions kind of line up in support or in exploration of this one question. The first one is this. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? After leveling the playing field and writing to a church now of mixed Jew and Gentile believers, Paul has to step back, include himself in this own argument, as a Jew, an apostle to the Gentiles, why, why does it matter if someone is a Jew? Why are we making this fuss about being a Jew? What's so good about being a Jew? If, as it appears that the playing field is level, and we've spent a lot of time establishing the level playing field, is there any advantage to being of Jewish heritage? And the answer to his question surprised me, jumped out of my chair, outraged that it appears to contradict everything that he's stated to this point. Verse 2, what's the advantage? What advantage do they have? Much in every way. It is no small advantage and it is no few advantage. It is A big advantage in every way. There's so much good about being Jewish. In this um, brief argument here in in chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul won't mention the other advantages that he lists later in chapter 9 of the Jews being recipients of the covenant, of the law, of the promises, of the forefathers. But instead he summarizes and highlights the paramount benefit as he sees it to begin with first or primarily the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God indeed there is advantage to being a Jew 
Indeed, there is something so good about being a Jew. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. I think there are a couple of key things to understand here regarding this primary benefit. The first is about the oracles. Word that's been antiquated. We don't use that often today. Literally, it's translated the words of God. But I think the translation oracles would be appropriate for the Greek hearer would have understood this to mean all of the divine utterances that have been recorded and translated throughout history. They would have understood everything that God has ever spoken, communicated. It was written down and it was given to the Jews. It's not merely the law or the prophets. It is every utterance of God recorded in the past. And the Gentiles would have seen, you know, that really is a tremendous benefit. We just, have, we just get to look at the created world around us and hope that we figure out the divine attributes of God and come to Him in faith. The Jew, God spoke to the Jew. It would be much easier for them. They have every advantage. Since the time of Abraham's call in Genesis 12, the Jews have been uniquely chosen, uniquely led, uniquely called by God to be His people, to hear His voice, to obey His commandments, to dwell in His land, to receive His promises, to participate in His mission in the world. They are the unrivaled recipients of all of the oracles of God. But they're not merely to be passive recipients as though the Jews have this book that contains all the oracles of God. No, it says they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given no small responsibility to not merely know the oracles of God, but to do them, to follow the way of Yahweh, to be the people of God. Their mission, as they conquered other nations, delivered to them by the same God, was to spread the reign of Yahweh throughout the world. The Gentiles had been entrusted with a general revelation of God, a revelation that says, you look at the world around you, you are not without excuse. You are responsible for how you respond to God. But the Jews uniquely had been entrusted with a special revelation that they are responsible now. Okay, how will you respond to God's word? How many of you this morning are holding a book on your lap that looks like this? How many of you are seated in a church building on a Sunday morning and I'm saying God is speaking to us through his word? It's easy for us to say, okay, we're not Jewish. And so, therefore, the advantage is not ours. When, in fact, God has spoken to you. You have the same advantage. The word that was passed down to the Jews has trickled down to us, and now here we are, entrusted with all the oracles of God. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with your advantage? Is the question today. Interestingly, um, 
Paul never returns to this list of advantages. This is the one that he gives, and then it's as though he has to stop and wrestle out the implications of having this advantage and living without it. And so he he begins to ask three questions really to unpack the dilemma of this advantage. How does this advantage become a benefit? And specifically, what does the neglect of this divinely given advantage say about who God is? And so the first question is in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some of these Jews were unfaithful? Meaning they were entrusted the oracles of God and they disregarded them. Unfaithful, that they were unrighteous. Unfaithful, that they had sinned in disobedience. The question is, what if the some of these Jews disregard their advantage? What if you're a smart Jew, a smart Christian sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning, you know all the answers, but you're a disobedient Christian or you're a disobedient Jew? It appears, um, I, I think, that we understand that this is a false hypothetical. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? We know that. We've read the Old Testament. We know the Jews were unfaithful. What if some, some believers are unfaithful? We know in our own hearts that some believers are unfaithful. So what happens to them? Clearly Paul's playing with the word faith here. Uh, there's the unfaithful. There's the faithlessness in faithfulness. In Scripture, the, the idea of faith is closely and visibly connected to the idea of a covenant, a treaty in which God and man have interact, interacted in a, um, in a covenant. It was an agreement between two parties, usually a king and his people. The terms of the covenant, are, a lot of what we have in the Old Testament are terms of the covenant. The requirements of the people necessary to receive the promised action of the king. God had made a covenant with a man named Abram. And I think this covenant is best summarized in Genesis 18.19. I... Yahweh have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was promised him, a land, a nation, and a a world blessing. God made a similar covenant with Moses, best summarized, I think, in Deuteronomy 4.13. Moses writes, the Lord declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, which if you are studying the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you realize that these are specific manifestations of righteousness and justice, no different than Abraham's covenant. That is, keep the Ten Commandments, that you might do them in the land you are going to possess. Again, the benefit, a a nation in a land blessing the world. As the Old Testament narrative continues, we see how these covenants play out, how God and the Jews continue to interact throughout history. And we see time and time again on every page, the Jews are faithless, disobedient, rebellious against their gracious king. 
the question posed is what then? What happened to them then in the Old Testament? How did God deal with them and extrapolate that to how is he going to deal with them today if they're unfaithful to this new invitation to believe the Messiah? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does God disavow his promises to his people? This is fun. There we go. Consider what happened in the Abrahamic covenant when God dealt with Abraham. What happened to God's covenant people when Abraham violated the terms of the covenant in his faithless taking of his servant Hagar and conceiving Ishmael? It was an act of disobedience, an act of faithlessness. Did Abraham's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Did Abraham's act of sin cause God to cease to be faithful to his promise? Consider the Mosaic Covenant. What happens, okay, play this out, what happens to God's covenant people when all of Israel violated the terms of the covenant by faithlessly worshipping a golden calf, faithlessly cowering at the occupants of the promised land, faithlessly complaining for 40 years in the desert? What happened to them? How did God deal with them? Did Israel's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Would God's promise to them be void? Consider this new covenant. What would happen to God's covenant people if they were to faithlessly reject the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah? Would their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The answer is emphatically, by no means, no way, not a chance, not in the least, is the faithfulness of God thwarted by the faithlessness of his people. Look at the way these stories continued. When Abraham faithlessly sinned, what did God do? God gave him a second son, the promised son, Isaac. God made a nation of his offspring, took him into the promised land. God was faithful when Israel faithlessly sinned under Moses' leadership, God sent them back into the desert, but led them into the promised land, where God again made covenant with them. So then, what of the advantaged Jew who faithlessly disregards the Messiah, the God-man Jesus? What then? God has even yet faithfully kept His promise, offering salvation to all men, promising that for all who believe, their sin will be forgiven and they will be saved. As God was faithful in Israel's faithless past, so He will be faithful in the future. Therefore, Paul insists, second half of verse 4, let God be true Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is true. God is faithful. Even when man is a liar or faithless. 
And this word truth should, should ring a bell in your ears that we heard in Romans 1.18 where the truth of God was suppressed. In Romans 1.25 where the truth of God was exchanged. And in Romans 2.8 where the truth of God was disobeyed. Even still, God is true nonetheless. And here Paul quotes um, Psalm 51.4. I want you to turn there with me. We read this at the beginning of our gathering this morning. But I think that Psalm 51.4 is a crystal clear case study of, of his point here. It's a psalm of King David. And David understood his faithless disobedience to be sin. Sin not only to Uriah or Bathsheba, but sin against God. And he says this in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In this psalm, King David, the quintessential Jew, the, the Lord is my shepherd Jew, the David and Goliath Jew, the Jew who should have been able to claim some kind of special advantage over and against all other Jews, admits, I can't claim any privilege against you, the just judge, have I sinned. Instead of saying, but you made a promise to me, but... I was kind of a really big character in the story. He says, against you have I sinned. That you might be declared to be just. Do what you must do. Have mercy on me. Have mercy. But do what you must do. He acknowledges he's unable to waive any advantage card. Because sin offends God and God is just. As we read Psalm 51, you you should have noticed a subtle shift in the last line of the verse as it was cited in Romans 3-4. In Psalm 51 it says that you might be blameless in your judgment, but in Romans 3 it says that you might prevail when you are judged, that you might conquer in the courtroom. The language paints a picture of this courtroom scene, one in which God himself is on trial regarding whether or not he has dealt faithfully and justly with his people. In order for God to conquer and be declared justified, he must be faithful and he must be righteous. He must be just. So the answer in this psalm, the answer echoing throughout the Old Testament, the echo, echoing, the answer echoing throughout Israel's history and into its futures, resounding, justified. God has been faithful. He has done all that He asked, all that He said. God has been righteous. He has not let one off the hook. Yes, God is faithful, even when we are faithless. He will not be thwarted. By our unfaithfulness, he will still be faithful. And then, Paul asks a second question in verse 5. But, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
I speak in a human way. He's saying, because the black velvet backdrop of my unrighteousness serves to contrast the brilliance of the diamond of God's righteousness, why must I be judged? It it, it appears that I should be excused. I make God look great. I really, I really show him off. After all, throughout Scripture, we see that God takes a preeminent interest in His glory being seen and known. So then, what shall we say? Is the question. God gets what God wants? Glory? His righteousness being seen? And I can maybe get what I want? Maybe He'll let me off free? Or even just, even just easy? The charge that's leveled in response is a very popular one today. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? God's God's wrath is a very unpopular topic for all the reasons that we that are that are contained in this passage. In our tendency, our culture's tendency, is we are looking for the way to be the excuse, to be the exception to God's justice. We're looking for some advantage, some get-out-of-hell-free card. I don't want to have to talk about wrath, I just want to kind of slide in unnoticed and be in heaven forever. God might be righteous to inflict his wrath on the the really bad people, but really, I mean, I'm pretty good, and so maybe, you know, God could go a little easier. That's the way that our our world thinks. That's the temptation of even the, the good churchmen to think this way. The essence of the question is, This, if by our unrighteousness, God's righteousness is displayed, is His righteousness then compromised because He inflicts wrath on those who enable God to display His righteousness? In essence, is God's wrath a negation of His righteousness? And the answer that He provides again By no means. By no means. Surely not. I think it's helpful here to consider another courtroom scene. A courtroom scene in which a serial rapist stands before a judge and says, On the grounds that my wickedness makes you, judge, look so excellent, declare me to be innocent. The appeal is absurd, but play play with it. The judge says, oh, wow, you know, he really has a point. I really look good compared to this guy. I look so good compared to this guy that it's, I'll just, yeah, innocent. You're free to go. Next, how, okay, this judge that was just looking awesome for a moment there, how does he look now by letting the, the guilty man off free? 
Oh, there would be a firestorm in the media. The most unjust, corrupt judge ever. The guy that looked so good now looks so bad. Likewise, while God's righteousness is contrasted with an unrighteous world, if he were to vindicate, to to let off unrighteous people, he would be proven to be unrighteous. His righteousness is only validated and only maintained by the righteous verdict guilty. I'm sorry, I, 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 know, I know you make me really look great because you are so bad, but you are still guilty. Paul answers his question with a question. For then how could God judge the world? Uh, Love it when he answers questions with questions. How could God judge the world if he's gonna let the if he's gonna let the Jews go free, the unrighteous Jews, if he's gonna let them somehow sneak in because he looks comparably better than them? What's he gonna do with the Gentiles? Up to this point, the the entire conversation's been about how is God going to deal with the unfaithful Jew? The question now becomes how he's gonna deal with the world. Extrapolate this kind of activity of injustice, of letting the guilty people go free. Extrapolate that to the world. Now, where is the standard for judgment? If it's true that the Jew and the Gentile will be placed on the same scale, with the same counterweight and measured, that judgment has entirely eroded if God treats the Jews this way. God will not be mutated by our unrighteousness. He will still be righteous. And there is yet one more question. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? This question you'll notice is clearly parallel to the last question. If... God is true, though every man's a liar. My lie abounds to, leads to his glory. Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Because I am a sinner. That, all that contrasting unrighteousness, evil leading to good, that means nothing. I'm still a sinner. The Jew must be condemned as a sinner. The Gentile must be condemned as a sinner. The advantaged are judged on the same scale as the disadvantaged. I think the the, uh, application of this question, the practice of this question, though, sneaks into our subconscious as we wrestle with ideas of, of fatalism. If everyone's going to be judged by the same standard and nobody is righteous, so everybody will be condemned, then why not just do whatever I fancy? Or if God's going to save everybody because he loves everybody and Jews and Gentiles are equal, his favorite people and his least favorite people, why not just do whatever I want in the meantime? Beware the temptation to oversimplify. 
for a third time. God will not be mocked by our lie. He will still be just. God will be faithful. God will be righteous. God will be just. It appears that some people, undoubtedly the Jewish religious elite, were raising this um, this claim, attempting to discredit the apostles' teaching by claiming that because they were preaching grace through faith in Jesus, which sounds cheap, they were in effect teaching do evil that good may come. So this claim was raised against them. In verse 8, it appears that Paul is frustrated or annoyed by their slander. And his final words in this section are a beautiful bit of irony. Their condemnation is just. (laughs) Of all the people in the whole world, Jews, Gentiles, I don't know, the people that are slandering us, their condemnation is just. Let God judge them righteously. When we began in verse 2, um, we expected to see this list of advantages that the Jew might have. The list of advantages that the evangelical Bible-holding person would have. Instead, we come to discover that there's really just one. And that one advantage is contingent upon it being acted upon. If the Jew disregards their advantage, they have no benefit, for God must judge them. Likewise, we have no benefit. If we call ourselves, identify as an evangelical American, if we go to church every week, if we sign up for every Bible study, if we volunteer at every shelter, but don't do all of the oracles of God, We have no advantage. We have no benefit. God, the righteous judge, will condemn us as a sinner, the same as every other sinner. He must. So Paul asks again in verse 9, What then? Are the Jews any better off? Very, very similar question to the one asked in Romans 3, verse 1. His conclusion this time, however, is this. No, not at all. They have an advantage, but they have no benefit. Let me summarize here. The, the, the arguments are complex. The, the Jew has an advantage, namely being entrusted with the oracles of God. If the Jew does not do all the oracles of God, God will still be faithful, righteous, and just, and must punish sin. Therefore, if the Jew does not do all the oracles of God, he has no benefit. He is not saved. We have an advantage, namely that we have been entrusted with the word of God. If we do not do all of the word of God, God is still faithful, God is still righteous, God is still just and must punish sin. And therefore, if we disregard our advantage, if we do not do all contained in the word of God, we have no benefit. So my final encouragement to you today is to do everything contained in the word of God. 
Don't lie, don't steal, don't lust, don't gossip. Only do justice, only do mercy, only do righteousness. And you know what? Your advantage will be for you a great benefit and you will be saved. You will experience eternal relief in sweet relationship with God forever. You will. It's unfair. You took nine verses and you said do all of it. I know. I, I don't pass. I don't make the cut. I can't do it. I can't keep all the words of God. I already have failed on every account. So my human tendency is to try to justify myself before God and make up these advantages that I'll maybe save one day for when I get to the judgment seat and I say, but God, I went to church every Sunday. So is there, is there nothing for that? But God, I was signed up for every Bible study. I went to every life group my whole life. I volunteered at every shelter. I gave my life for social justice. I held a good job. I cared for my family. I lived peaceful. I I prayed a prayer once at summer camp. Nothing. We try so hard to be the exception to God's justice, but His righteousness demands a perfect standard. And His justice won't be fooled by our attempts. So the only way that I actually think it possible to escape the just judgment of God is to be hidden under the shadow of someone who is justified before God. Is to find a person who will be willing to exchange their perfection, their obedience to all the oracles of God for my imperfections. So that I can have all of his benefit and he can have all of my curse. This morning, we can be thankful that even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. Even though we are worse than we ever imagined, we are more loved than we dared to dream. Even though we abandon our only advantage by failing to keep every one of God's commands, God still offers us Jesus. So instead of trying to keep all of those lists in the Bible. Stop working so hard to conjure up a list of reasons that God should justify you when He's given you already the only reason. Jesus. Believe Jesus. Follow Him. He alone can save you. This morning we have the joyful opportunities to celebrate our union with the one who was willing to exchange his obedience for our disobedience, his benefit for our disadvantage, our curse. We do this every month as a tangible reminder that God has died in our place that we might live in him. Communion is a time for us to celebrate the good news that God has done for us, what we could not do ourselves. And again, taking part in communion is of no spiritual advantage to you. It is merely a symbol of what is already true inside that you have already found communion with God in Jesus. And we celebrate that. 
So if, if that is not you this morning, would you just pass on this moment as we sing? Um, but consider your own, your own life. Would you be willing now to, to give up trying to keep every letter of the law? Would you submit to following Jesus that you might live in him, walk in his way following him? There will be an elder available at the front here um, during these next few songs and willing to pray for you. There's a table in each corner of the room while we joyfully celebrate during the next song. Not, not soberly, but with great joy. This is great news. Would you make your way to one of the tables, take the bread and the cup, return to your seat, and in just a moment we will celebrate together. Now would you pray with me?